Welcome to uh, this evening's public lecture, which is being held as part of the uh, 2008 Franco-British Europe Dialogue, which is co-organized by the LSE's European Institute, Sciences Po in Paris, and the French Embassy in the United Kingdom. My name is Professor Jim Hughes. Uh, I'm in the government department. Our speaker this evening is Marie Mondra. Marie is research fellow at the Centre National de la Recherche Scientifique and a lecturer at Sciences Po. She's a specialist of Russian studies at the Centre d'Etudes et de Recherche Internationale and chairs l'Observatoire de la Russie, which is one of France's most prominent um, research groups on Russian affairs. Marie is also editor of Le Cahir Russi, the Russia Papers, which is an internationally respected and uh, distinguished journal of Russian studies. Marie is what probably the Americans would call a, a Russia hand. Her work deals with Russian politics and society and with Russians, Russia's foreign relations. She's uh, been studying Russia for uh, at least 20 years. Uh, She's a frequent visitor to Russia, uh, a frequent visitor to Russia at key moments in Russian, his, Russian uh, affairs over the last uh, 15, 20 years, uh, particularly at election time. In fact, she was uh, observing the recent parliamentary elections in Russia uh, in December. She is also a member of the Valdai Discussion Club, which was set up in 2004, late 2004, under the aegis of the uh, Foreign Policy and Defense Council in Russia, which is an attempt to bring together Western and Russian policymakers and experts to discuss matters of mutual concern relating to Russia. She is the author of numerous books and articles, and her most recent works are focused very much on the role of Putin and how he has been reshaping Russia since 2000. She uh, published a book on uh, Putin's Russia in 2005 and she has a new book on, on Putin's role in reshaping Russian state institutions coming out very shortly. Um, she also is the author of a recent study on human rights in Russia which was commissioned by the uh, Commission on Human Rights in the European Parliament and that was uh, issued in November 2007. Well, to say that Russia's relations with the European Union are somewhat strained would be a, a, a gross understatement and of course relations with the UK have become very frosty indeed in the last year or so. And the steady deepening of this chill in Russia's relations with Europe undoubtedly correlates with Putin's consolidation of power since 2000. To help us better understand the relationship between uh, Putin, Putin's power and the current thinking in Russia about Europe, Marie will speak this evening on the subject of Russia's policy towards Europe, aggressive retrenchment, question mark. Marie. Thank you, Jim. Maybe I will stand. So everyone can see me. I think it's better to, to stand. Uh, thank you very much, Jim, uh, 
Thank you, uh, Damien, Maurice, and Christian, uh, for inviting me to speak here. It's, it's a great honor to, to be back uh, uh, at the London School of Economics and Political Science. I was uh, uh, telling my friends here that my very first time at the London School of Economics was when I was a grad student uh, uh, at Harvard, and I was uh, visiting Britain to try and understand how Sovietologists were viewing uh, uh, the Brezhnev succession uh, and uh, I had this most wonderful meeting with Leonard Shapiro uh, who at the time was still teaching here and um, he was really my very first contact with the London School of Economics with Le Leonard uh, uh, Shapiro um, the, the subject um, of today Russia's relation to Europe for aggressive retrenchment is a topic uh, I will deal with uh, really from the Russian point of view mainly. As Jim explained, I'm really a Russia specialist and not uh, a Brussels watcher. Uh, and I think in, in this room we have quite a few competent uh, scholars and experts on uh, the European Union's policies towards Russia. So my idea is more to sort of set the stage in Russia itself and try and have a better understanding of how this issue of um, you know, Russia's foreign policy, Russia's worldview, Russia's uh, positioning with uh, uh, Europe and the European Union uh, is, uh, is changing and might, uh, might be changing in, uh, uh, in the years to come. Um, I have chosen the term Europe and not the European Union for my talk uh, uh, because my belief is that Russian elites, as I understand them, they tend to think about national states first. Then they think about Europe. Uh, or they think in terms of the Western world and, 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 and the West, uh, Zapad. And only later... Uh, they will think in terms of the European Union as, as, as an institution or as a collection of states. But very rarely will you have a Russian decision maker or a Russian expert, um, a Russian political scientist thinking about you know, <coughs> Russia and the European Union. It will come really at a later stage if it comes. Uh, because to them, it, the European Union uh, is, is um, I think even to this day, uh, a, a, strange, a strange animal. Um, one obvious but essential feature to underline at the very beginning uh, of my talk is that the Russia-Europe relationship, whether it's Europe or the European Union uh, as an institution, it is a fundamentally asymmetrical relationship. And I think it's, it's just we should always uh, uh, remember this because sometimes we, we tend to see studies or analyses of the Russia-Europe relationship as if we had two comparable actors, which is not at all the case. Of course, we have one big national state, um, um, that is um, moving in a very authoritarian direction in terms of uh, 
domestic politics and is trying to make a return in, in, uh, uh, on the international scene. And um, on the other side, we have uh, a region of the world, we have a collection of states, we have uh, uh, the European institutions, uh, and 27 member states is of course something that I would say even for uh, people in Moscow is almost impossible to envisage that you can put around a table uh, representatives of 27 very different states and come to some form of decision. I mean, it is to, to them really, I think, very difficult to, to comprehend because, as you know, Russians have never had uh, true allies and have never experienced uh, truly multilateral relations uh, you know, <coughs> with, with any uh, of their former republics or former uh, satellites. So this, I think, is the one element that should be uh, um, emphasized at the very beginning. Another point I'd like to emphasize um, in my introduction is um, that I think for the Russian elites and decision makers, when they think outside the realm of their own country um, and probably also outside their former sphere of influence, or the uh, you know, Central Asia and, and let's say, and the Caucasus, um, they tend to look at the global context of West world politics. And uh, they have this vision of the world that they have. They put uh, you know, at the core, you know, at the very center of the way that they will deal with European countries and uh, with the Western states. So it, it all really results first from the vision they have of um, uh, world politics. And um, because this is the way that they deal with Europe in, um, in international affairs, I think it is also important to uh, stress that for a long time, European states have been the enemy has been part of the global enemy that was, uh, uh, that, that was the capitalist uh, camp. And that it has been relatively easy and natural uh, for, uh, the, 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 for Putin and, and people around Putin to go back uh, to looking at European countries as potential enemies. It is not something just absolutely uh, uh, new and uh, we think it is, it, is, it is very new because we live with the references of the end of the Cold War in the 1990s that we have seen as globally positive uh, for the security uh, uh, of our region and for the security of the world. So our reference to the opening of Russia and the partnership between uh, Yeltsin's Russia, first Gorbachev's Soviet Union, then Yeltsin's Russia, and us uh, in Europe, uh, is, is a very positive reference. And so we can be surprised when we see uh, this uh, uh, major change in the mentality, in the positioning, and the rhetoric, and the policies of uh, Putin's regime. But then if you are based in Moscow, your references are quite different. 
you know, the 1990s uh, are not a good period in the perceptions of the elites in Russia and uh, of most of the uh, population. So what to us is a positive reference is uh, a negative reference for uh, most Russians. And so there is sometimes also, I think, a misunderstanding when uh, we uh, in Europe think of the 1930s as the worst period in the history of the continent. Uh, if you ask a Russian, and you can see that in public opinion polls, uh, if you ask them what the worst period for them is the 1990s. So there is already a, a, a very clear asymmetry also in the um, historical references and uh, the, 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 the minds, in the minds of, uh, of the elites and in society in our European countries and, um, and in, uh, in, in Russia. Now, I would like uh, here to, to develop really three main points, and I'll try to be relatively brief so we really have time for questions and comments and, uh, and discussions. Um, I assume that you know, most of you have a, a fairly good idea of where uh, relations between the European Union and Russia stand today, and Jim Hughes uh, said that you know, they, had, they have never been as strained as today, and uh, uh, if you want later uh, with questions, we can go more into the, you know, into the concrete uh, uh, aspects of the various uh, uh, domains of the relationship, but I thought it was more interesting here uh, to go into uh, a, a discussion of how the relationship to European states is, um, is uh, valued and is uh, uh, dealt with in, uh, in Moscow. Um, so I have really three major uh, hypotheses that I'd like to, um, uh, to deal with. The first is that Europe... Um, in Russia remains an undefined notion. Uh, it's, it's a notion that is, is not finished, that is not clear. If we think that for us also, it's certainly not finished and not clear and not closed, you can imagine that it's even more undefined and uh, confused in, uh, in uh, Russian minds. Uh, but also I think because this uh, concept of the European Union and the workings, the concrete workings of the European Union are not that easy uh, to understand for uh, the Russian elites. Uh, it tends to be an abstraction. They tend to treat it, the European Union, on a very abstract level um, and in a way, in a very strategic way. Um, and they see it and they keep repeating, especially in recent months, that the European Union is a construction, that it is artificial, um, that in a way it, it could not exist, that it is not uh, a collection of state that is natural. And they see it more and more, uh, of course, since 2004, uh, when the European Union uh, enlarged uh, to uh, the new member states and... Uh, uh, and, and also with, with NATO enlargement, with this concomitant enlargement of the Western sphere and uh, the, uh, the European sphere. Um, the, 
My second hypothesis is um, the, what I call the paradigm of proximity uh, and all the misgivings that go with it. Um, how we tend to think that because we are geographically uh, close to Russia, uh, there is a law of proximity that should make relations easy and natural and absolutely compulsory. This is not the way uh, the, the, the Russians uh, uh, look at proximity. And my third and last point is uh, what I call the weak sovereignty, uh, that if, if I you know, look for a way to summarize um, Vladimir Putin's governments and, and, and um, uh, advisors' attitudes uh, towards uh, European states and in particular the new member states and also uh, the former Soviet republics that might uh, join the European Union, uh, their uh, major uh, concern is to keep those states weak. Of, 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 uh, in terms of sovereignty and uh, independence. Uh, so the, the first point about Europe and what, um, what does it mean for Russians uh, and why it is probably so different uh, for a Russian uh, compared to a Georgian or even a Ukrainian uh, to, to understand what Europe is and how to relate to, um, uh, to Europe. Um, in a way, um, I think the Russian elites that you know, we can read and we can talk to, uh, they have a very historical uh, notion of Europe uh, and in a way a very traditional notion of the old European states. And I think this is also one of the main explanations why they feel much more comfortable uh, in bilateral relations and even more so in bilateral relations with old European states and if possible with old powerful European states. Uh, there is clearly uh, a hierarchy uh, of, of, of states uh, and if you try to explain that uh, you know, in the European Union a small state can have a, a strategic position, uh, uh, be economically uh, dominant or uh, have um, a specificity in the, the workings of the European Union, um, your Russian interlocutors simply will not believe it. It's, it's, uh, so I think to, to keep this very traditional notion of a, a region that was um, uh, the heart of the world and is slowly dying in its role of uh, uh, center of uh, world uh, politics. Uh, some of the Russian experts uh, are not uh, terribly uh, agreeable when, when they speak to us these days and uh, sometimes they have a, a formula of, uh, uh, like, uh, uh, for example, the, uh, Dmitry Trenin, uh, who works at uh, Carnegie, the Carnegie Center in Moscow has this formula that, uh, well, you know, today uh, uh, America is down, Russia is up, and Europe is out. Uh, so, uh, uh, but I think it really stems from, again, this traditional vision. I mean, in France and Germany, 
are not major powers, uh, then, and, and if they are constrained by the multi multilateral constraints of the European Union, uh, if they are not as sovereign as they were uh, earlier, uh, you know, what's, what's the point? So there is a clear, um, uh, a, a clear understanding of sovereign in the new uh, Russian lexicon as power. It's, it's, uh, being sovereign is being, uh, being uh, uh, powerful. And when we move on to discuss the uh, uh, famous uh, uh, slogan of sovereign democracy, which is the, uh, the Putin slogan, we'll see that most of it is really in terms of, uh, in terms of power, economic, political, and strategic, uh, strategic power. Uh, so if, if we understand that this is their view of, uh, of Europe and that the European Union is still in a way a construction, sort of con artificially constructed uh, entity, um, uh, then um, of course they are not uh, highly motivated uh, to invest, uh, innovate, and um, devise new policies toward the European Union. To them, it is just simply uh, not uh, a priority. It is not absolutely necessary. And if they have a choice, they will always put uh, more uh, energy and, and more money and more diplomacy into uh, some bilateral deals not necessarily only uh, diplomatic deals, but it can be business deals, uh, energy deals, and they will always, always prefer it and believe that this is, this is how to be uh, more powerful and more significant in the relationship with Europe uh, as, a, um, as, a, as a region. Uh, so um, they, I don't think they are too concerned about uh, you know, whether the European Union uh, could become more of a confederation of states uh, because they simply do not believe uh, that the European Union can be as powerful, again in their relatively traditional perception of international affairs, as you know, a traditional state. The European Union will never be um, uh, a, great, um, a great power. It's interesting to remember the way the Soviet experts and Soviet leaders were speaking and writing about the European Union in the 1970s. Because again, they tend to go back uh, to um, uh, their old, um, uh, their old uh, uh, understanding of Europe. In the 1970s, they were trying to understand what was going on in Europe. And um, the only really angle that they were interested in uh, was how the European Union could, be, could become what they called a power center, an alternative power center to the United States. And that was almost you know, exclusively uh, the approach uh, that was asked from experts in the various institutes and uh, at the Central Committee of, of the Communist Party uh, was in strategic terms. 
and they all thought that it was a strategic construction and at the time did not believe that the French and the Germans could get along. I mean, to, to them it was just simply inconceivable. You know, the French and the Germans had been enemies uh, you know, for, for, for ages and, and they would always remain uh, uh, enemies. And it, it took them a lot of time, I think, to understand uh, that they were wrong and that um, the French, the Germans uh, and other European nations could really uh, get together and overcome um, their, uh, their old, um, old rivalries and, and old, uh, old uh, conflicts. And I think if we took some time to observe, for example, the uh, Russian-Polish relationship, we'd see you know, how much, again, the uh, uh, old habits um, uh, are, are back. Whereas if you uh, look at the German-Polish relationship, it's been mending in quite a, in quite a different way. So the, the legacy of Soviet policies and Soviet ideology, I think is worth remembering precisely because today there is a sort of natural leaning back uh, to, uh, to, to that period. Um, the, 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 the challenge, of course, for the European Union uh, in this Russian view of Europe is that it is extremely different from what we try to do. Uh, we try to be uh, very pragmatic. Uh, we try to, um, uh, to decide what we do with borders, what we do with migrations, what we do uh, uh, with the Schengen space, with, with visas. Uh, we try to understand, uh, you know, uh, how far can Europe enlarge. We try to understand what we can do with the partnership agreements with countries that wish to join the uh, European uh, Union. And um, on the uh, other side, we have the Russian government uh, that uh, has a vision of um, borders and of the countries in between, especially, of course, Georgia and Ukraine, uh, as not being... Uh, clearly independent states. Uh, so here we also have in Russia um, um, a deliberate uh, policy on the part of the elites to prove uh, to the population uh, that borders you know, are not necessarily uh, borders of fully independent states. And if you take um, a poll that was done about a year ago by the Levada Center, uh, the Russian population is asked about how they view uh, their neighbors, former republics, European states, the West, China, etc. And there are extraordinary answers uh, for those who have no idea of uh, the, the, the rhetoric and the mentality in Russia. To the question... Um, do, do you think uh, that Belarus is a foreign state? Two-thirds of Russians answer no. To the question, do you think Ukraine is an independent state? It's about the same, just a little less than, uh, than Belarus. 
you know, and if, uh, uh, you know, not going to quote the, the, the full poll, but if you ask them, you know, do you think uh, that, um, uh, <coughs> that you belong to Europe or that Ru Russia uh, can belong to Europe or is part of Europe, not the European Union, but Europe, you have a, a, a great majority that answer no, that, in, that see clearly that the, just the, the Russian uh, past and the Russian future is separate from Europe. Uh, I think it is very interesting to, to take a look at those opinion polls because we now have about 15 years of such opinion polls and this change is dramatic if you compare to the same questions uh, asked you know, five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. You have a real shift. I mean, it's almost you know, upside down if you take the, uh, the no and, uh, and yes answers. Uh, so we have a Russian leadership that is instilling in Russian minds, in the minds of the Russian public, a vision of the Russian state and a vision of neighboring states that is quite different uh, from our own vision, uh, which is much more based on uh, you know, international law, uh, uh, sovereignty, uh, uh, respect of borders, etc., etc. And I think you know, this will help us understand uh, better later when we come to the issues, um, the issue of, uh, of frozen, uh, frozen conflicts. Um, the, um, now the, uh, the, the paradigm of uh, proximity. We have a very rational discourse in, in Europe um, and if you're in Paris, in Berlin, I'm sure also in London, and even more so in Brussels, and um, you know, you talk to experts, to officials, diplomats about the very strained relations uh, with Russia, the answer you'll most likely get is yes, of course, it's very difficult. Um, yes, it might be getting worse because now Putin is staying in power and he really feels he's. Uh, on top of the world, etc. But you know, they are neighbor. We are their number one economic partner. Uh, we depend on their energy. They depend on our buying their hydrocarbons, etc. So we're so close, you know, we can't do one without the other. So, you know, things have to be okay. I mean, things have to get better because. Uh, uh, and I think we tend to really work on this paradigm that because there is proximity, um, what we are going through at the moment is only you know, a short-term crisis. Because rationally, naturally, we have to have a good neighborly relationship with the Russian Federation. Plus it's in their interest, isn't it, in the Russians' interest? to have great relations with, uh, with the European Union, with, uh, not only with Germans, French, and Brits, but also with the Romanians, Bulgarians, the Baltic states, etc. And um, so we, we have this wishful equation of proximity and of um, economic uh, common interests and the necessity also of peaceful relations and uh, more security. Uh, that should lead uh, to a 
you know, a, a good entente uh, with the Russians. And I think it's because we have been very, uh, um, we, we haven't been willing to, to, to see uh, this relationship from the point of view of the Russian, and that we have been uh, edamen to, to continue uh, to think that there was a, 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 similar, a similar view uh, of uh, uh, what we had to do together, that we uh, failed uh, on a number of issues, because there have been a great number of failures in relations between the European Union and between some European states and the Russian state in, uh, in recent years. I mean, it's, again, it's not for me here to go through you know, a critique of uh, European Union policies to, towards Russia, uh, but, but, but clearly there have been uh, mistakes and failures, and I think many <coughs> of them based simply on, um, on uh, misunderstanding. Um, to, um, to the Russians, Proximity means interdependence, hence dependence, hence interference. And they don't like it. I mean, it's one thing that is very clear if you take you know, Putin's speeches or his uh, advisor's speeches or Sergei Lavrov's uh, uh, rhetoric. It is now, we're no longer in the 1990s, you no longer interfere. And the idea that you know, we don't want interference means we don't want interdependence. And the idea of proximity is not a positive paradigm. Um, now, uh, uh, you know, oil and gas, migration, etc. It is, of course, an issue of proximity. It is because Russia is our neighbor. But then you probably know what is the counter-argument coming now from uh, the Russian uh, uh, ruling elite is, well, you know, if you're a difficult neighbor, then we have other neighbors we can deal with. We have China, we have Japan, we have India, uh, and those countries, you know, they, they don't give us a hard time with, with common values, with democracy, human rights. It's much worse in their countries, I mean, certainly with China. Uh, so um, if you continue to, 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 to understand the relationship in those terms, then uh, you know, we, we can turn to those Asian countries and uh, uh, we, we, we don't know, need to, to abide by, by your rules. And this is where uh, we really have to have um, some new thinking I think, in uh, European countries about what we mean by common values. Because today in Russia, it is simply an expression that they no longer want to hear from us. Uh, so we can again continue to say that you know, human rights and democracy are essential features and it's almost impossible to have a good relationship uh, with uh, uh, Russia if uh, uh, the Russian... Uh, um, president and the Russian government continue to violate uh, human right, rights, to have fraudulent elections, uh, to assassinate journalists, etc., etc. Uh, but the Russian elite simply no longer cares. This is this, this is a fact. And um, uh, the now in Brussels we have a sort of new argument: is 
to replace common values with common interests. And we have to try and engage Russia in the idea that maybe we don't share all the values uh, of uh, an open and democratic uh, society. But we do have common interests. This is rational. And um, we, should, um, uh, we, we should get along better and, 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 um, and um, have more productive relations, not only uh, economic and energy, but also political, cultural, and security uh, relations. Uh, again, I think uh, this will lead nowhere because the, uh, the, the Russians at this stage are going much further and quicker now in, along the path of what they call the, you know, the sovereign democracy or the Russian-specific path, which to them means you know, both uh, domestic aspects and uh, international, international aspects. And they do believe that with their uh, new uh, energy uh, dominance and their uh, good economic and financial condition now, uh, that they can dictate um, you know, the rules of the game, that we had dictated the rules of the game for some time, and now uh, they can dictate them. Uh, so uh, uh, this uh, leads us to uh, uh, the third point, which is uh, certainly the, uh, the most uh, serious, uh, which is what I uh, encapsulate in the, in the term weak sovereignty. Uh, which uh, I think uh, is uh, a way of summarizing uh, Putin's, uh, Putin's uh, ideology and, uh, and policies. I think in a way it's almost uh, an iron law uh, of, uh, of Putin's strategy. Uh, first and foremost, the idea of sovereign democracy uh, was designed uh, toward the former republic that haven't joined the European Union uh, or NATO. Uh, and uh, We've seen this developing for some years, but if you recall the uh, uh, extreme crisis with Georgia uh, a little uh, more than, uh, than a year ago, uh, or the incredible reaction of Putin and his advisors to the Orange Revolution in Ukraine uh, in 2004, and uh, today again the uh, Russian reaction uh, to uh, the Georgian presidential election of uh, last Saturday, uh, then you can see uh, that this is a very, very sensitive issue and that they have decided uh, to make a case of um, um, not having those former republics uh, build uh, sovereign, uh, sovereign and independent institutions and um, you know, becoming... Um, states uh, that can uh, face security, uh, political, economic choices without having uh, the agreement uh, of, uh, of Moscow. And uh, this is why uh, to the Russians, and they say it very officially, there is no common neighborhood. I mean, talk to a Russian uh, official about the common neighborhood. The first um, reaction will be but you speak of a common neighborhood we don't we have our own neighborhood and again it's going back uh, to, um, 
the uh, phrase of, uh, uh, of the early uh, 1990s, uh, the, uh, the, the close, um, how was it in English? The uh, the the near abroad. That is that is the expression. Uh, the the near abroad. Uh, today uh, you see this phrase coming back. The near abroad is uh, the counter argument to the European Union's uh, common uh, common neighbourhood. Um, and um, the, it is also a major test, of course of uh, the European states and Brussels' capacity to respond to Moscow's uh, uh, power of disruption in those states. I mean, Moscow is, is, is uh, following uh, in great detail uh, the reactions of, uh, in European capitals of what we're going to do with uh, Mikhail Saakashvili's uh, re-election. It is to them, to them a, a, a real test. And there was another test, for example, which is in, uh, in last May in, in Estonia with the removal of the statue of the uh, Soviet soldier, uh, where probably uh, the Russian authorities did not expect uh, such uh, uh, an organized and uh, uh, reaction on the part of the European Union uh, to, uh, to, 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 to refuse the... Uh, uh, the, the, the Russian aggressive, um, aggressive reaction. Um, so the weak sovereignty, I think, in a way, is also what they see in the European Union. I mean, uh, uh, an entity that has uh, no army, no intelligence services, uh, you know, but only a central bank, uh, cannot be sovereign. I mean, it's not a state, it cannot be sovereign. It's weak. Uh, and uh, the fact that we cannot uh, have a common uh, uh, foreign defense policy is to them it's just a proof uh, that, um, uh, that we can't do it and that it is structural. There is just no way it can be done because only states and powerful states, traditional states, um, can, um, can, uh, can do it. Um, the, uh, the weak sovereignty is, of course, a very dangerous um, weapons, and we see it today with the question of Kosovo and the frozen conflicts. Uh, Putin has very consistently, in the last three, four years, explained uh, you know, his position on Kosovo and the so-called frozen conflicts, uh, Abkhazia, Ossetia, um, Transnistria uh, <coughs> and uh, also uh, Karabakh. So even if we scream and say that no, our conception is that Kosovo is no precedent, the Russians will always respond that it is a precedent. And that will continue. There is absolutely no way uh, that we can have them uh, uh, change uh, their, uh, their position. But this has been building up. I mean, it shouldn't be a surprise you know, for those who care to read uh, and listen and, and talk uh, uh, to uh, people in the Kremlin. Uh, all this was, was written in advance. I mean, absolutely, uh, absolutely no, no surprise. Um, the, the, um, 
Of course, the concept of sovereign democracy in Russia poses another challenge uh, to us in Europe because it's, it is also a way of reasserting Russia's right to decide how it wants to be governed. And if it decides to be governed in an authoritarian way, um, well, that's, uh, that's the right, you know. So Putin may still prefer to talk of some form of, uh, you know, uh, centralized democracy or as, as, you know, as was done earlier under uh, the Soviet period. So he can keep the term democracy when that, uh, that is no problem for him. Uh, but what is very different today with the situation two or three years ago is that the Russian leaders um, want this to be known, that this is their choice, that they don't play democracy. Uh, and this is the great change with what you know, many experts and, uh, and I was writing also three or four years ago. You know, they imitate democracy, but it's not real democracy. They try to keep a facade of, of, of democracy because it's easier. They want to have good relations with us, so they play uh, with our sentiments, and uh, they know it's a sensitive court. No longer. And there's a major change there. Major change. I mean, again, Jim mentioned that uh, you know, uh, I... I uh, was in some of these meetings with, with Putin and Vladislav Surkov and, and the ministers and, uh, in uh, 2004, 2005, 2006, and uh, they were very plain about it, very, very plain. I mean, I remember um, so about a year and a half ago this meeting with, uh, uh, with Shuvalov, uh, who is one of uh, Putin's close aides, um, and I was asking him a question about, about Ukraine. Um, and, you know, again, going back to uh, my favorite opinion poll from the Levada uh, Center, you know, what's been extremely um, preoccupying in, in the evolution of the ordinary Russians' mentality and attitudes is um, just after the Orange Revolution, for example, because they, they are completely fed you know, uh, by uh, the propaganda through the first two channels, uh, television channels, they would tell you that they, you know, didn't agree with the Orange Revolution and uh, they didn't think it was good and they didn't like Yushinka, etc. But three years later, what do you have in opinion polls? The ordinary Russian doesn't like Ukrainians. He thinks for a, at least a good quarter of them that it's a potential enemy. Ask him today what he thinks of Georgians, the Georgian people, not just of Sarkashvili or Shevanadze before. Of, uh, he, he doesn't like Georgians. He doesn't trust them. He thinks it is uh, some of them, I mean, again, I think for Georgians, at least a good third think it's a potential enemy. So it's, you know, a, 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 a major change. So there, there's a difference between, you know, having a, you know, feeding the population with the criticism of a government and, 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 and developing a real antagonism against a nation, a population that used to be part of your own state. You know, they all used to be Soviet citizens. So when I asked Shuvalov about, about Ukraine, you know, and... and um, of course, the Ukraine was at the time and still is in political crisis, but um, 
Uh, and did I think that the new government at the time, that the, uh, with Yanukovych, that it was better for relations with Russia, and w w w would, you know, would they trust the new government better than they? Uh, the answer was extraordinarily uh, hard uh, and, 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 and aggressive. It was, but how can you uh, expect from me to believe a Ukrainian? Ukrainians should never be trusted. They're a terrible nation. And all this, you know, in front of, you know, 30 or 40 um, Western uh, experts, and uh, you know, you, you, you know, it, 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 it's, it's not a true nation. It's not a sovereign state. Uh, uh, what do you expect, you know, whether it's Timoshenko, Yanukovych, or another, will always have terrible relations with them uh, unless they, um, you know, unless they accept our terms. So this was set to us, and I could multiply um, the, the examples. Uh, and, and I think we have to take this into consideration, that, of course, it is a rhetorical play. I mean, it's a way of putting pressure on us, putting pressure on the Ukrainians, but it is also a reflection of the way they think about other peoples and other countries, you know, with, with a sort of lack of respect, whereas we tend, or at least we try, to have respect for new nations or small nations. I can tell you, you know, for the French elite, it's not easy, but we try. But the Russians don't try. You know, it's, it's, it's anything that's smaller, that is less powerful, uh, uh, that has less oil and gas today is, is just, you know, a, a state, an entity, a nation that key, can be kept weak, you know. And, 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 and so the, the, the sovereign democracy is really affirmed and, um, uh, and, and, and now accepted, uh, I would say, almost as an ideology. And there I, I will con conclude on, on this point of uh, ideology because I think this is a debate going on uh, among uh, experts. Um, some believe that there is um, you know, a, a real ideology now in, in Putin's policy, both domestically uh, and uh, internationally. Uh, some believe that it's a neo-Soviet ideology, neo-imperial, uh, sort of reconquest, maybe not militarily, but at least economically and, and in, in, in security, uh, uh, with security means. Uh, others on the other end of the spectrum believe that, no, it's just a rhetoric that uh, Putin is a great pragmatist. Uh, he's not an ideologue. He, uh, he knows where his uh, uh, interests are. And, uh, and again, you know, the idea of proximity, he has to get along with us. And uh, uh, so, you know, we can live with the new Russian rhetoric. Maybe it doesn't have uh, uh, so much, um, uh, so much uh, implication uh, uh, in, in, in the end. Um, I think it's, uh, the, the answer is that they try to build an ideology. They're trying to. Uh, they're trying to, but they don't quite know how. Uh, so at the moment, you have a mixture of you know, sovereign democracy, of xenophobia, um, uh, of uh, a, a refusal and denial of globalization, uh, a denial of international law in, uh, in, in many uh, domains. 
um, they try to, uh, to construct some form of, uh, you know, Russian culture, Russian civilization, uh, even a conception of, uh, of Russian law. And of course, they try to put forward a conception of Russian capitalism. Uh, I think for reasons that I certainly don't have time uh, to expose now, but I hope will come out during the discussion, um, they will have great difficulty in putting together all those bits and pieces uh, because the, 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 the great um, ambivalence of uh, uh, the Russian leadership today uh, is that um, they, uh, they want to be strong and they want us not to interfere. But in some other way, they want to belong. You know, they, they want to be part uh, of the international game, and they know they are not in reality, you know, if you, especially if they compare themselves to China and India, that they are economically, demographically, they are small, in fact. And, and I think they, they have, so they have this, this, this great, uh, this great uh, ambivalence and um, in the end, um, I truly believe that they still uh, look at Europe as the only region in the world where they feel that they can belong, where they feel that they can send their children to study, uh, the, where they can take their holidays comfortable and very safe way, uh, it's uh, also the region where they want to invest more and uh, it's interesting to see that in fact I would say in their real lives you know, as, as human beings uh, or also as, as social and economic uh, actors Russians, Russian individuals, Russian leaders, Russian companies yes they, they, they do see Europe as, as the best neighbor, as the best opportunity. And there you have the law of, uh, of proximity. But in terms of you know, grand politics and geostrategy and the abstraction of uh, you know, Russia's power in the world, then they want and will continue to treat Europe and the European Union uh, as a weak partner and more and more as a political adversary. And in particular, of course, when uh, we come to the issues of Georgia, Ukraine, the frozen uh, uh, conflicts, uh, etc. So I think it leaves to us now open also for discussion uh, how, uh, you know, how can the European governments and the uh, European Union respond uh, to a partner uh, that doesn't really think and act in terms of partnership. Uh, you know, how, how, can, uh, uh, how can one uh, uh, do that? How can we continue to be uh, rational and still defend our values and try to defend uh, the respect of human rights and, uh, you know, and, and, and competitive, uh, uh, competitive market and, uh, you know, in, uh, in Eastern Europe and, and in Russia? How can we continue to do that and still have, you know, some uh, influence on, uh, on the Russian leadership? Thank you very much.
Well, thank you very much for a fascinating talk, Marie, and uh, now it's time for some questions. <coughs> Usually, Chair's privilege. I, I, I'll get mine in uh, first. <coughs> sure. Uh, you talked about um, Russia preferring this, the, the bilateral approach and preferring to treat with great powers and treat, treat with European Union key member states rather than the European Union as an entity. And I just wonder um, whether we should not think of this as a one-way process after all. I mean, it's a two-way process. Russia needs bilateral. Uh, we're talking about bilater bilateralism. We're talking about part great powers on the European side who prefer to deal with Russia also on a bilateral basis. And I mean, isn't it the lack of cohesiveness within the EU states that makes things rather easy for Russia? Um, I mean, how, how realistic is it to expect that Europe can have a common approach to Russia? I mean, it tried to have a common strategy with Russia and it failed. Can't we just expect this bilateralism to be a kind of permanent state of affairs? Absolutely. I think it's uh, um, I mean it's clear that um, most of the uh, European governments uh, prefer uh, to deal with Russia on a bilateral basis, and so it's you know it's a vicious circle. You know, uh, uh, our president is much more comfortable uh, when he when he can strike a deal with uh, President Putin. Uh, than if he has to, um, you know, negotiate uh, and try to get everyone around the table uh, and have a common energy policy. Uh, I, I think, uh, yes, clearly there's very little chance uh, that uh, uh, European governments will um, try to be a little less traditional in the ways that they deal, uh, that they deal with Russia. Uh, and, and of course, the, uh, the Russian leadership has understood this very well and knows uh, that they are, you know, that it, we, we will continue to act this way. It's, uh, it's clearly, I think I mentioned it only very briefly at the beginning of my talk, that I'm not dealing with uh, the European uh, part of, of, of the topic and uh, but that, of course, we, we made many mistakes and we also were very contradictory many times uh, when there could have been uh, uh, I think there could have been uh, common European reactions uh, and that would have helped probably convince uh, the Kremlin that uh, on a number of issues you cannot only build your relationship on bilateral, uh, bilateral deals and I'd like to add just one thing is that when the new member states joined and uh, we were all concerned that, you know, because they were more, um, um, they, they, they knew the Russian ways better, let's put it this way, uh, and so they would tend to be more hostile uh, to Russia and more critical uh, of, uh, of the Russian government. Uh, but what we have seen is that a number of the states, when their national interests are uh, confirmed, uh, energy, uh, notably, uh, they will also go with bilateral agreements. I mean, the Hungarians, for example, about the pipeline, about, um, about a year ago. I mean, 
And the Hungarians said it very plainly. I mean, again, there was no, uh, uh, what about the, the Slovak uh, position on Kosovo? You know? Uh, so yes, Jim, you're, you're, you're very right. I mean, I, I think uh, the, the problem is not um, to, um, to, to <laughs> criticize Russia for uh, privileging bilateral relations, but um, explaining that this is the way they will always uh, go about in, in the years to come. And, and that bilateral agreements, I think, in terms, I think, will prevail. I think they, they, they generally feel that um, when an, an agreement is signed with the EU, it can be dis disregarded with more ease than an agreement signed with the state. Or with a major, or with a major company. Let's let's take some questions. Uh, we have a question on the right here, and then Mark. We'll, we'll take three mm -hmm. questions at once. Okay. And then so, thank, thank you very much for uh, a very stimulating speech. My Could question, you speak up? Uh, my question is uh, basically: Is there a role? Um, does EU enlargement? specifically uh, another round of enlargement, specifically with regard to Ukraine over the medium term, have any role to play in, in the EU's relationship with Russia over this period of time? Can that not be used as a vehicle in some way for mm -hmm. the, uh, to gain leverage within this relationship? I think you need to put this microphone very close to your mouth. Yeah. Here. Thank you. Thank you very much for, for, for a, a very interesting lecture. Um, I think it's probably worth pointing out that it's not just Russia that has trouble with dealing with the EU or seeing the EU as a strong power. America is quite famous for Absolutely. acting in exactly the same way about Europe. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to ask a question about the, the um, Levada polls, which show a decreasing number of Russians identifying themselves as European and to ask whether this isn't actually what one might expect, given the fact that you have a Europe, a Western Europe that tends to define itself in terms of the European Union and, and NATO, that uh, keeps enlarging and uh, with each enlargement actively excludes Russia. Isn't it just what one might expect, that fewer and fewer Russians therefore see themselves as European? Um, thank you. I'd, I'd like to ask a question about Kosovo. Um, you made the point that, over here. Where are you? <laughs> over here. You made the point in regard to uh, Putin consistently presenting uh, the situation as a precedent. And, and I think there's a degree of logic to that. And I think the whole dis that there's a, a degree of um, putting one's head in the sand on the part of uh, European and American policy makers in thinking that this is not going to be perceived as a precedent, whether one wants to legally call it a precedent or not, the political perception is that if Kosovo is recognized, Russia will very clearly see it as a precedent. And as you say, Russia has made this point clearly for a number of years. Putin has made this point clearly. Therefore, what will Putin or Russia's reaction be in the next few months as Kosovo does move towards the likelihood of declaring its independence and a unilateral declaration that is likely to be uh, recognized in certain capitals. What will Russia's reaction be? Is Russia going to respond in kind in regard to Abkhazia? 
Um, or is this going to be calling Russia's bluff? And, and how will Russia use this as a lever towards Georgia, particularly given the developments we're seeing in Georgia now? And one could uh, surmise that the way in which the election has been perceived in Georgia by the OSCE observers might mean that Georgia might be back on track for an early uh, membership action plan in the Bucharest summit, which might perhaps be an incorrect reading of what's really happened in the Georgian election just now. It's, um, uh, I, I think I will start with, with, uh, uh, with Kosovo. Um, I think the whole issue of Kosovo, if you want to understand it from the point of view of Moscow, it's Chechnya. I mean, that's where it really starts. Uh, and, that's, um, and that's where we are terribly responsible. But don't have me start with this uh, because I've been fighting for years for our governments um, to say something about the two wars in Chechnya and I've always failed so it's an extremely uh, painful, uh, painful subject but we'll see, we see all the consequences the terrible consequences uh, of what we accepted uh, with Chechnya since 1995 uh, uh, today um, and, and, and Kosovo is only one of them because remember um, a few years ago we would say oh well you know the, the Russians cannot uh, you know uh, uh, I mean, they, they have a problem I mean, they cannot uh, support uh, the independence of Abkhazia after they've killed about 200,000 Chechens uh, to prevent the independence of Chechnya. I mean, this is not rational. Again, we are rational animals. You know, it's, a, it's just not possible. So we had kept this idea that you know, the, the, the Russians just, just couldn't do that. But I think we had underestimated, first, the fact that they wanted, really wanted to give a hard time to Georgia and to Shivan at the time. And, um, you know, Putin is someone who, um, as many of my French, uh, my Russian friends say, uh, you know, uh, to be Putin's enemy is one thing, you know, you can survive. Uh, but if you're a traitor uh, and you don't survive, uh, so I, I think we, we underestimate the, 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 the personal thing, you know, and this capacity to resort to violence uh, with absolutely no civilian control or anything. And that's what's been going on in Russia since December 94, you know, with the first war in Chechnya. So when we today, you know, we look at this and say, oh, well, you know, uh, Putin should understand and he should talk to the Serbs and, and um, you know, the, uh, it's a right of, of, of uh, uh, self-determination, etc., etc. I think we, 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 we forget uh, the, the past uh, 13 years. Now, this is, will be, if you want, my sort of brief <laughs> answer to, to, to your very, very, very big question. 
that would um, take me a long, long time to, um, to, to respond in, in details. So again, we should have seen it coming. You know, it, 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 it's there. You know, if, if, we, if we sort of agreed uh, with the idea that Russia could resort to great violence and destruction of civilian population to keep its territory, you know, uh, uh, fully uh, uh, sovereign and uh, th 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 there we come you know, we, we have absolutely no common um, I think we have no almost no way of speaking with them uh, on those subjects now about Abkhazia I really don't know I mean until recently I really believed that the, the, the Russian authorities of course, didn't take seriously, you know, the independence of Abkhazia and, you know, they had a referendum and that it, they were playing with fire. They've been playing with fire in the Caucasus and, and in Georgia. And, but, but now I don't know. You know, again, it, it's another rationality and uh, they might feel that um, it's uh, a necessary a step to do as if uh, Abkhazia were really independent uh, from Georgia. So what I didn't believe six months ago, maybe I will believe in, in, in a few months. So again, I think it's important to see that things are not, um, you know, immobile. Uh, things are changing, and certainly not for the better for that, um, for, 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 for that region. Uh, just briefly about Georgia. Again, we see this is the terrible dilemma that we have, and I was finishing my talk on, on this note, which is that we have to deal with, with a country, Russia, that no longer considers democratic values as core to, to, to their system, to their society. Uh, and, 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 and that is, is, is a, a very, very important element in the way they deal with the uh, with foreign countries. Now, uh, 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 the Russians are having a, 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 a jolly time, uh, you know, uh, uh, supporting uh, the democratic opposition in Georgia uh, against Saakashvili. And, uh, you know, our, uh, our French friend Salome Zourabishvili uh, is really caught in a dilemma. Because she doesn't want, you know, to be uh, on, on the side of the Russian rhetoric against Saakashvili. So, uh, and there again, I think uh, we've been, um, uh, as we say in French, on leur a attendu uh, la corde. Uh, how would it be in English? Pour se faire pendre. Give them the rope, yeah? Yeah, thank you. Um, on um, uh, uh, Margot, thank you very much for your question because uh, I, I, think, uh, I think you're right. Y yes, of course, in a way, you know, a, a, an ordinary Russian. Um, he, uh, he listens and, you know, watches um, the first two channels uh, an average of five and a half hours a day. Well, if you can stand, you know, more than an hour, then you're brave. <laughs> you know, so they, they have it about, you know, uh, statistically at least five hours a day. You do have a vision of Russia surrounded by hostile people and by enemies. 
It is the obras vraga, uh, the image of the enemy. It is there. It is there on TV channels. It is there uh, um, uh, in, the, uh, in the official press. It is there in the official uh, rhetoric. So uh, as I mentioned, even Georgians today are potential enemies. Uh, uh, so uh, uh, I think this is the major point in, in to, to try and, and, and explain how the mentality is changing. But of course, on top of that, uh, the ordinary Russian is being told that uh, European and NATO enlargement is a hostile move to isolate Russia and make it, it feel even more unsafe and surrounded uh, by uh, potential enemies. So yes, now he has uh, fully understood, the ordinary Russian has fully understood that the European Union is another universe, that it is not accessible except for uh, maybe a weekend in Paris uh, or sales in London if you have money, but that's only about maybe 10, 15% of the population that can think about our capitals in this way. So for the ordinary Russian that cannot come to Paris or, uh, or, or, or London, the European Union is more and more a strange thing, you know, so somewhere that, you know, that they don't really belong. And this gives me the opportunity to, to stress an, another aspect of uh, you know, Russian politics, which is that you, you really have uh, two Russias. The, 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 the Russia that can be open to the outside, that has internet, uh, that can go if, if he wants to, uh, can go on the site of Nova Gazeta, Anna Politkovska's uh, newspaper, uh, or can go on, on our sites and can travel uh, to, to, to our countries and can have a satellite and, and, and not be a hostage of the uh, official TV channels and has you know, enough money to have a relatively comfortable life and feel closer to our way of life. And that's about 20, 25% of the population really that has the free access to the outside. And then you have the 70, 75% that ha do not have this access uh, uh, to the outside world. It is much more a hostage of those representations, of, of those images. And what is very preoccupying for, uh, for us uh, who, who study uh, uh, Russian society is that the quarter of Russian society that has access, that has money, is relatively happy with the Putin regime. In a way, um, you know, they struck a deal with the political regime. Um, we don't deal, uh, you know, we, 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 we don't deal with politics. We let you do it, even if it's authoritarian, you know, because we can have our weekend in London. Um, and uh, you let us do our business. You know, and, 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 and buy uh, an apartment abroad and, and, send, uh, uh, and send our uh, daughter to the LSC. And, uh, and so there is, there is a true, um, uh, a, a true, I would say, sort of tacit agreement uh, which goes against, again, our, our rationality because we always believe that it's the, you know, the upper class, the intelligentsia, uh, the, the, the ones that are more open, that are more Europeanized, that will fight for democracy and will go down in the streets and organize an orange revolution. 
but it is not, it is not so uh, um, in, uh, in Russia. Uh, now, about the, the question about enlargement and, and, and Ukraine, yes, of course. I mean, Ukraine is the key issue for European uh, enlargement and uh, for uh, Russian policies. It's absolutely the key. I mean, uh, Georgia is, 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 you know, is a fixation, but Ukraine is a key country. And, and, I, and, and, and if uh, I told you about the Shuvalov's reaction, I think what he was trying to say was precisely, be careful, Ukraine, we really care. We really care. Uh, and so, well, again, we are, uh, you know, uh, in, in, in a dilemma. Uh, how, how do we do, deal with Ukraine and, and, and not damage uh, further our relations uh, with Russia? Okay, Marie, we're moving towards a close, and we've got one, I'll take one more question here. Could you speak into that microphone sure. very loudly? Yep. It's not okay. Um, thanks very much for a wonderfully clear and pertinent lecture. You talked a lot all the time about the ruling elite, and I just mm -hmm. wanted to pursue you a little bit more in the answer mm -hmm. that you gave to Margot there. Um, about the potential for divisions within the ruling elite and the potential to which Russia Inc., those who really want to get rich, might find that the Russia, the autocratic nationalist state, is undermining them and will start to get unhappy about that. Because what we've had is, is a Russia where democracies failed, but capitalism, making money is now very acceptable. Um, just to widen the question a tiny bit more to that other area on which you're a great expert, would there be any tensions between the regions and the center about the reimposition of such strong, central, centralized thinking? You would like me to, to read another lecture? <laughs> Two minutes. Uh, no Please. other question to, to have together. If there's no? No, I think uh, we only have time for the one. Unless you had something related, please. Yes, very, 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 very briefly on your question, uh, but, but, but it, it's an important one. Uh, I, 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 I don't believe in, in any form of uh, alliance or a sympathy between the Serbs and, and the Russians. And, and, and believe me, it, it's just simply not there. But you can play on it when, when it when it's useful, which is exactly what Putin is, is doing uh, is doing now. The, the, the Russian, uh, you know, the, the, the Russian Church and, and, and uh, Alexei uh, the Second uh, are. I mean, he is the number one nationalist in Russia. Uh, I mean, it's extraordinary. You know, he is even more Putinist than, than Putin, and there's a clear collusion between. Uh, again, the hierarchy of the church. I mean, I'm only speaking about the, you know, the, the patriarch and, uh, uh, and, and the state. And, and this, this collusion, uh, again, is, is bad news uh, for uh, the modernization, not only the democratization, 
but the modernization of, of, uh, of the Russian state and, and, uh, and uh, Russian uh, society. But this orthodox hierarchy is hyper-nationalist and xenophobic. So, you know, they, they don't really care about, about the Serbs or, uh, or about... Uh, uh, it's, uh, so I think one should really understand uh, that um, uh, orthodoxy is... is for, for Putin, orthodoxy is the, is the nation. You know, he, that, that's the way he, uh, he, he, he looks at it. But now, uh, you know, bridge with... Uh, uh, with the question on, on, on the, uh, uh, you know, oligarchic capitalism and, um, you know, I say the second is an oligarch. Putin is an oligarch. But if I were a Russian expert or journalist, I just can tell you this. Too dangerous. Too dangerous. Um, and um, uh, so um, I always smile, you know, when I'm... Uh, Asked, you know, it's, it's not your question, but when, when I ask whether, you know, Putin versus the oligarchs. Or, but the oligarchs, those who come, they are in the Kremlin. They, they are there. I mean, it's, this, you know, the, the, the state is oligarchic. The Kremlin is uh, oligarchic. About 10 years ago, one of our research projects, together with, with the Russian colleagues, like Igor Klyamkin and others, and um, Yasin, the economist Yasin, uh, and Jim was part of that project at some point on you know, regional um, development. And um, uh, I remember Klyamkin's position, he's a Russian sociologist and political scientist, was trying to be optimistic and say, but listen, you know, business is growing in Russia. And especially small business has to grow. I mean, we, 140 million people cannot only live on, you know, oil industry and, 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 uh, and arms. Uh, so there, there will be a growth of small business. And rationally, uh, businessmen need the rule of law. You know, they, they prefer the arbitrage of, of, of honest courts and, and, and be able to turn to the state uh, instead of having to, you know, to, 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 to pay, uh, you know, Krisha, to pay for, you know, rackets and, uh, and get their own protection. So there should be an interest amongst the rising middle class, at least economic middle class, to go for the rule of law. And, and, and they should. It has failed. It has dramatically failed for reasons that I have absolutely no time to expose, but I could expose to you. So now we have another phase. Uh, and the phase is, 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 the, is the big oligarchy with an extreme concentration of economic activity, of resources, uh, public revenues in the hands of a few major uh, giants you know, powers, and, you know, Gazprom is not only uh, natural gas. It's much more uh, than, uh, uh, than natural, uh, uh, natural gas. So when will these people, uh, I mean, the very top of the Russian ruling elite, when will they feel that it is getting really dangerous to rule such a big country with big resources? Only about maybe 50, 100 people 
with maybe the arbitrage of a president, but it's not that clear now that we'll have a sort of tandem or a regence, you know, with uh, Putin and young Dmitry Medvedev, who to these days is also, you know, CEO of, uh, of Gazprom, when will they feel that it's really dangerous and that they can't um, arbitrate between themselves, among themselves, right. and that they need some sort of external, um, you know, and that they, they, they need the law or courts to, 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 to make decisions between themselves. I think this is the way I would uh, answer your question, but it's very brief for a huge, um, a huge question. We Thank really you. must stop here. I think it's been a fascinating talk and we could go on for much longer. And Marie deserves a big thank you for coming to the LSE and giving us such an amazing talk. Thank you.